Hey, what's up? My name is Stephen, and I lead Avenue Church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, along with my wife and an incredible team. We really have a desire to see people experience God's unconditional love, find their true identity in Christ, and live out their purpose. And we would love to connect with you. You can find us on all social media platforms simply by searching Our Avenue Church. You can also check us out online by going to OurAvenueChurch.com. We really pray that something in this message inspires and equips you to experience the way of life you were created to live in Christ. Enjoy. Judges chapter six, go there. Judges chapter six. So um, we're in week three of this series called Face to Face where we're looking at some encounters um, with God. Because you and I, uh, and John says this a lot in worship, we serve a God who um, is intimately involved in our life and wants to interact with us, not just on a Sunday morning, but throughout our life. And we will have these encounters, not of a third kind, right? But we will have these encounters of a spiritual kind throughout our life where we encounter God in a new way, in a different way um, on just a regular, ordinary day. And we talked about Moses had the burning bush experience that changed the trajectory of his life. But even beyond just having encounters with God, Moses was um, consumed, so to speak, with cultivating God's presence in his life. That I want us as a church to walk Um, cultivating God's presence here in our services, but even more importantly, daily on, you know, Monday through Saturday in your life. If the only time you're encountering and cultivating God's presence in your life is on Sunday mornings when you've got, you know, a backup band to help you, right? You're missing out on so much of God's goodness in your life. And then last week we looked at Jacob who was deceitful. He was a deceiver. He was the grandson of Abraham. And he lived his life seeking affirmation from so many different areas, from his parents, from his big brother, from his wives, from the wealth, from his father-in-law. But really the only person that can give you and I, and we're like Jacob in some ways, that, that we try to find affirmation based on what we can do. But the only real affirmation that will satisfy the appetite that we have is the affirmation we get from our Heavenly Father. And so as we're looking at these encounters, what I'm finding out is a lot of times what I'm seeing in the pattern is is God is saying and teaching us the same thing. That from the Old Testament to the New Testament, when someone has an encounter with God or they experience God, they're learning the lesson that they've already been taught or they're being taught the lesson that God has already taught someone else, that God is constantly in Scripture, Old Testament to New Testament, saying the same thing in different ways to you and I. Would you guys agree to that? And so, so when I think about that in terms of parenting, like why is God constantly telling us the same thing in different ways? Because we're probably not getting it. And so I find myself as a parent sometimes saying the same thing over and over and over until they get it. And God has to work that way in our life sometimes. And as we're looking at at, at today's story, which isn't really a story, it's like it's a historical account from this guy named Gideon. Um, And so if you're in the book of Judges, it's really one of my favorite books in the Bible. Uh, If you think 
the Bible is boring, just go read Judges. Like it puts Gladiator, 300, Saving Private Ryan, it puts all those movies to shame with like some of the gore and fighting that's in it. There's, there's a story where, where God saves his people through a judge that, that fights an oppressor and he stabs him in the stomach and it says that the blade disappears in his stomach and his bowels emptied as he died can picture what that would be like. And then another, it says that this oppressor was literally staked to the ground through the head with a stake tent, tent stake, <laughs> right? Like I'm not camping with that person ever, right? And so then we see this story of Gideon. It's just an average everyday guy like you and I, um, not a whole lot of interesting things going on. And, and by his own account, he is described as the weakest in his clan. So we're going to pick up in Judges chapter 6. Did I give you enough time to get there? Are you there? Perfect. At this time, uh, God's people, they've, they've done a lot of evil things in the sight of the Lord. And so there's, there's consequences. Anytime you do something you're not supposed to do, there are consequences. And so the consequences in this season, in this place and time for the children of Israel is God has handed them over to the Midianites who are raiders, essentially not a football team, but they are a tribe that, that comes in and, and steals all their crops, steals all their livestock. And the children of Israel are hiding in fear and essentially starving to death. And this is where we see in verse 11, it says, the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree of Oprah, which not like Oprah Winfrey, but another Oprah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abiezar. Gideon, son of Joash, was there threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. So Gideon's hiding out and he's threshing grain in the bottom of a wine press. And it says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. Now, most scholars and theologians are in agreement that anytime we see this phrase, the angel of the Lord, um, that that is the pre-incarnate Christ. That means it is before Christ is born that he is made visible and is interacting on earth before he takes on the form of man. And so we see like the, the angel Gabriel, the angel Michael, but then we see this figure over and over popping up as the angel of the Lord. He has this encounter with Gideon and he says, you are a mighty hero. The Lord is with you. And so Gideon is like, Sir, um, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles that our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say the Lord has brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. So in this, in this couple of passages here, who is Gideon blaming for the state that they're in? He's blaming God. Isn't that what we do sometimes when, when we are walking away from God, living apart from God's best, and then there are consequences from our actions, and we start reaping those consequences that sometimes we turn the blame towards God. And so that's what Gideon is doing in this moment. He's like, where have you been? Why are you causing us to go through this? But it's not necessarily God that's causing them to go through this. It's consequences from their actions. But the Lord replied to Gideon, or actually, this is the Lord turned to him and said, 
Go with the strength that you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites, and I am sending you, verse 15. But Lord, Gideon replied, how can I rescue Israel? My clan is the weakest in the whole tribe of Manasseh, and I am the least in my entire family. And so the Lord said to him, I will be with you, and you will destroy the Midianites as if you were fighting against one man. Now, Gideon's not fully convinced. He's not fully convinced. He's like, God, look, just to make sure, if you're truly going to help me, show me a sign. Anybody asked for a sign? Right? We need those sometimes. We pursue those to prove that it's really you, Lord, speaking to me. And we've all done that, right? It's like, God, if this is you, open up that parking place, like at the very front of the store. It's like, please, like, if, if you're really with me today, let me park close to the store. If you're really going to help me, show me a sign, prove it, that it's really you speaking to me. He says, don't go away until I come back and bring my offering to you. I just like that sometimes we try to give God directions on how he should do things. And so Gideon's like, just wait right here, I'll be back. And it says that he went and he prepared a goat for an offering and he, he brought it, he put it on the altar and he made the preparations for it. And then it says that the angel of the Lord touched the offering with the end of his staff and it went up in flames. Verse 22, last verse here. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he cried out, O sovereign Lord, I am doomed for I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. to face. Gideon has had a face-to-face encounter with the creator of the universe. And he's realizing in this moment, I probably shouldn't be the one giving the orders, <laughs> right? I am doomed. And God says, no, you're, you're not gonna be doomed. Um, he lived and he actually succeeded on the thing that God had called him to do. And I want to point out some truths from this. There's, there's about four truths that I want us to walk through that, in all honesty, as I was prepping this week and even looking, it's like, God, this really isn't like a whole lot of new stuff, but it's the same thing said in a different way. And sometimes we hear the same thing over and over and over until we've heard it said just a little bit differently and then it clicks. Anybody? And it's like, I've been telling you this, God's like, I've been telling you this the whole time. It's like, I know, but I finally heard it. And there's there's four things I wanna point out. And, And the first one is this. When we look at the story of Gideon and how God calls Gideon, that I want you and I to understand that God sees the you that he can use. I know that rhymes. That's what pastors do. We make stuff rhyme so you can remember it. God sees the you that he can use because who we see is the person looking back in the mirror at us when we're brushing our teeth in the morning and our hair is everywhere or mine used to be everywhere. Now it's just here, right? But we see our insecurities, We see our flaws, we see our past, we see our mess ups, but God looks at you and I and he sees the potential. And there's times I'm probably sure even in my life where there's some disappointment there because we're not living out that potential and he's calling us to greater things. But, but God calls Gideon this. He says that you are a mighty hero. And, and even some translations say that God calls him a mighty man of valor. Now, now think about what's taking place here. Essentially, Gideon is in the basement of a wine press threshing wheat. Now, I don't know what that process looks like. I've never threshed wheat. Anybody? Can you help me out? No, me neither. All right. 
um, to make grain, to make bread. I just, I go to Kroger, get bread and make myself a sandwich. But he's in this whole process, threshing grain in a basement. This process normally takes place out in the open because when you're threshing grain, there's this chaff that is with it that when it breaks away, it blows away in the wind and all that you have left is the grain. And so what is supposed to be taking place out in the open because of fear of what the Midianites are going to do, Gideon is hiding in the basement. Now, is that a mighty man of valor or is that a scaredy cat? Scaredy cat, right? So he's not even living up in this moment to what God is calling him to. And, and so he goes on and says, you are this. And Gideon says, there's no way. There's no way I'm the warrior. I'm the smallest clan in the weakest family. I'm the weakest in the family. It ain't me. Ain't may not be an appropriate word, right? But how many times have we said that? It ain't me. Don't call me to do it. I'm not, your, I'm not your guy. And Gideon's having this conversation, but God is trying to get him to see that he is the person that he wants to use. There's more in you than what you believe. There's more in you than what you think you're capable of doing. Jesus even echoes this in the New Testament when he's telling the disciples that even greater things, those who believe in me, even greater things will you do than what I have done. Jesus is raising the dead, feeding the multitude healing the sick. And he's saying, you have the same potential, not just to do that, but to do even more. And, and the disciples understood this in one, in, in, in one way, because when people looked at the disciples, most of them were outcasts. They were fishermen. They were following their father's trade. And even one point in the book of Acts, when they had done something for the Lord and they were arrested the religious people looked at them and said, they're nothing but unschooled fishermen. Basically, they're saying they don't have what it takes, but it's obvious they have been with Jesus because of how they walked and because of how they were operating. And even when you look at scripture, so, so you may be looking at yourself, you may be thinking, well, I'm kind of like an unschooled fisherman. I'm not qualified. I don't, I don't have the qualifications. I don't have the skill set. I don't have the confidence. I don't have all these things. And maybe say, I don't have all these things, but I have all this like, inadequacies, all this sin, all these things that, that, that would disqualify me. But when you look, guys, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, God uses the disqualified. He uses those that you probably would not pick. Abraham lied multiple times. His wife must have been pretty hot. She must have been pretty hot because when they got to Egypt, he said, this is my sister, please don't kill me. <laughs> Basically, because if people would have thought his wife was his wife, they would have killed him and taken his wife. But he said, this is my, he didn't do that just once. He did it twice. And then his son lied about it. And then his grandson was a deceiver. There was some generational things. Abraham was a liar. Moses was a murderer and had a speech impediment. David was an adulterer and murdered just reminded me, I saw that clip of uh, Richard Pryor in my head. Anybody ever seen that? It's like, what were you in prison for? Murder. Guys, what goes on in my head is just crazy. Sometimes I'm trying to preach a sermon and Richard Pryor's talking to me, right? <laughs> but God uses people like that. Peter had an incredible temper. Paul was persecuting the church and then became a church planter. So there is absolutely nothing that is in your past that can prevent you 
from being used by God because when he sees you, he doesn't see you. He sees the you that he can use. But we have to look in God's word. He sees, and I found this quote. It's Ralph Waldo Emerson for all of you literary fans out there. Um, It says, treat a man as he is and he will remain as he is. Treat a man as he could be and he will become what he should be. That's how God works with us. He treats us with what we're capable of doing, what we could be. And as we follow him in obedience, we become what we should be. And so he sees the you that he can use. The second thing that, that, that we see in Judges chapter six, verses 25 through 27, God doesn't just send um, Gideon right out to take on the mission. He says this in verse 25, it says, that night the Lord said to Gideon, take the second bull from your father's herd the one that is seven years old. And then he says, look, pull down your father's altar to Baal, cut down the Asherah pole standing beside it, then build an altar to the Lord your God here on this hilltop sanctuary. He says, lay the stones carefully. Sacrifice the bull as a burnt offering, using as fuel for the wood, using as fuel the wood of the poles that you cut down. Verse 27, so Gideon took 10 of his servants and did just as the Lord has commanded. Sometimes the first assignment that God gives us and the first assignment that God gave Gideon was not to go out and destroy the enemy, but to go home and rebuild the altars to God. And so for you and I, we have to understand that personal faithfulness precedes public ministry that before we can go out and change the world, we gotta go back home sometimes and clean up our house. We gotta get things ordered in our home, in our life. And, and for, for Gideon, this is, this is kind of a scary feat because he didn't just say, go home and clean up your house, but he said, pull down your father's altar. Um, you don't want to mess with dad stuff, <laughs> right? Like, like dad stuff growing up was like off limits. I couldn't touch his tools unless he told me to hand him something, <laughs> right? And I felt like that's, that's all I do now when I work with people who are good with tools, that I don't get to use them, I just get to hand them, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, but you got to think, this isn't just like Gideon's dad's tools. This is Gideon's dad's place of worship. This is the altar that his dad has built to a false god. And Gideon is saying, go tear it down. And sometimes before we can go on the mission that God calls us to, we have to go back to a place of personal faithfulness. And so let me ask you this. Are there any idols that have been built up in your household or in your life that maybe God has been talking with you about that needs to be pulled down? And I'm not saying you got a little statue hidden in your closet that you pray to. That's not what I'm saying. But we all at times allow things to be built up in our life that become idols before God because of our schedules and priorities and different things that happen in our life, we allow just, just by negligence in my life, that's how it happens. It happens by negligence. Just by not putting God as priority in negligence, I start building these other altars to things in my life. What altars have you allowed to be built up in your life that you need to go home as an act of personal faithfulness and begin to tear down? And for some of us, you know, it's, it's, it was his father's altar to build. And think about this, and I don't like using the word curse, like generational curse, curses. Some of us come from church backgrounds where that's used. If we're walking in Christ, we are free from curses, right? Come on. But I do think that there are some generational sins 
that are carried over from one generation to the next because they're not dealt with. As a matter of fact, like we all deal with generational sin, if nothing else, because of Adam and Eve, right? We are born with, 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 with just a propensity to want to sin, which is to want to do the opposite of what God wants us to do. But I think there are some of us in here that may have some generational sins that were our fathers, our mothers, our grandfathers, great-grandfathers that maybe were not dealt with then. And so now, listen to me, now it rests on you. And that's a heavy responsibility. But by you taking care of it now, it prevents it from being passed on to the next generation. And that's like, in all honesty, like there are things ministry-wise that I wanted to do long before now. And there are things ministry-wise that I want to do in the future that... I didn't like it, but God whispered to me. It wasn't audible, but there are things that I want to do that I know I probably will not do because he's given me assignment to change things for future generations. And so the energy that I would want to put into that, that may get a little more recognition, <laughs> right? I have to put in back here on laying a new foundation for some generational sins. And for some of us, like, like it may be adultery, it may be lying, it may be gossip, it may be like hoarding, it may be like greed, whatever that is that you see in the past, take the assignment of going back home and being personally faithful to what God's called you to there. Does that make sense? And it says that, that he laid the stones. He said, lay the stones carefully. Just don't throw them down. Laying the stones carefully, build back the altar. Some of you need to take, need to take the same, what is, um, intentionality in cultivating your relationship with God that you take in other areas of your life. That you are so careful in getting other areas of your life just right and we're kind of half-heartedly walking in our relationship with God. I don't like, I don't want to condemn anybody here. Everybody take a deep breath. All right. I don't, I don't want you walking out of here. It's like, you know, nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Think I'll go eat some Bugs. worms. You guys, where did you grow up? You go eat some worms. I don't want you walking out condemned, but I, I do want you to be convicted just a little bit. Because that's not my words. That's the Holy Spirit saying, look, let's, let's give some attention to some of these things, right? And so public personal faithfulness precedes public ministry. Um, the last, the next couple of things is this, is I want you to understand God is patient with our faith process. God is patient with our faith process. And I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but in, in chapter six, verses 33 through 40, we see Gideon coming back to God. So, so Gideon has already asked God once, Lord, if you're really talking to me, then prove it. And then it gets time to go to battle and Gideon comes back to God and says, listen, if you're really gonna help me be victorious, then let me ask you a question. Can you prove it? He says, if you're really gonna use me to defeat the army, prove it. And so he puts this fleece on the ground of the threshing floor. And the first night he says, look, if you're really going to use me, then I'm going to put this fleece here. I'm going to put this blanket here. And when I wake up in the morning, I want the fleece to be wet and I want the ground around it to be dry from the dew. If you guys ever went camping and there's dew on the ground, it's everywhere. 
It is no respecter of item. It's no respecter of person. Like you wake up in the tent, even though you're in the tent and you're just like moist. I just, I can't stand it. But Gideon is like, look, let the fleece be wet and the floor to be dry. And so he wakes up and guess what? The fleece is wet. The floor is dry. He's asked for a sign and God gave him a sign, but that sign wasn't good enough. He says, listen, God, can I ask one more favor? How about tonight when I go to bed, when I wake up, how about let the fleece be dry and the floor be wet? And he wakes up the next morning and guess what he finds? What he asked for. Now, now this terminology in the church world is called putting out a fleece. Has anybody ever heard that? It's kind of a church term. It's like, I'm gonna put out a fleece for this to get direction for God. Can I just let you know, God is okay with the faith process? Okay, Some of you may not have the freedom to feel that. Let me give you permission to know that it's okay to question God in some areas. Now, obviously, when it comes to things of of a sin nature, that it's black and white. There are things that we are obedient when it comes to the things of God. There are things that we must do and things that we shouldn't do. But then there are things that he kind of gives us freedom to walk in. Are you okay? Okay. (laughs) <laughs> it's like, really? I have freedom? As, listen, the scripture says um, that it's okay. Like Paul, Paul is talking about grace and, and how we're covered by grace. He says, it's, it's okay that I sin more, that grace may abound more. That's not what I'm saying, right? What I'm saying is that it's okay to question God and like, am I really supposed to go in this direction? Gideon is saying, are you really, really going to use me? Because what that means is you're in conversation with God. And you're drawing closer to him to seek the answer instead of going to everyone else. And there will come a day, guys, I promise, where I'm no longer telling church planner stories, but you're going to get a church planning story. When, when my pastor prayed for us to have our testimony updated, I didn't realize how like um, traumatic that was going to be and everything that we would go through. And, and about a month before we were to move here, um, I was having just a a spaz moment. Anybody ever have a spaz moment? I was like, God, did I hear you right? Like, I'm just like Gideon. Like, did I hear you right? Are you sure? Like, it's you and not me. Is this something that you're just wanting? Like, are you wanting me to do this? Or in my fear and insecurity, this is something that, that I'm trying to make happen? And so I had this freak out moment and I was praying in the auditorium and I'm just moving around and because I was kind of scurrying. When, when I'm nervous and anxious, I walk a lot and I pace a lot. I'm one of those guys when I get a phone call and it's an uncomfortable phone call, I'm in the yard and I'm walking hoping my neighbors don't hear me. And so, so I'm in the sanctuary and I'm just pacing. I'm talking to God. I was like, look, I need to know like this is you and this is not me. I need you to give me a sign and just let me know that, that I'm following you in the direction that I'm supposed to go. I did not get an answer right there, but as I'm going back to my office, my phone dings and Jennifer, my wife, sends me a devotion that one of her co-workers had sent her. I don't remember the devotion, but I do remember the scripture very plainly. John 10, 27, it says, the sheep know my voice. I know them and they follow me. I'm like, so are you saying I'm following you? Okay, I'm good then. And so God shows up when we give him opportunities to show up. And so he is okay with our faith process. However, listen to me on this. Once you have your sign and you know that you know that you know, then you have a responsibility to walk and step in obedience. Because if you don't do that, then James 
the brother of Jesus says, he who knows what is right and doesn't do it, that is sin. And so there's that big gray area that, that Christ puts very quickly in a black and white area. If you know you're supposed to do it and you don't do it, that is sin. But he's okay with us getting to that process. And then the last thing is this that we see. And I love how our worship team, like I give them my sermon series for the month, but I don't really give them the individual sermons because it could change from week to week. But this morning we sang about victory, that the battle is the Lord's, that we're gonna see a victory. We're gonna have a victory. Victory is the Lord. And my last point is success is determined by God's power, not ours. Victory, if you want to change out those words, victory is determined by God's power, not ours. And so it comes time for Gideon to go into battle. Battle day comes. This is in Judges chapter seven. If you want to read it, battle day comes in Judges chapter seven. Gideon's got his army together. The Midianites have their army together. The Midianites mustered together an incredible 150,000 soldiers. Gideon gets his army together. He's got an incredible 32,000 soldiers. The odds aren't looking really good. Like that's, you know, five times. The Midianites have five times more than what the children of Israel have. And this is, this is God's statement. He says, you have too many warriors. If I let you fight and win, you will brag that it was by your own strength. 32,000 versus 135,000. Like that's too many. There's no way that's too many. You can't have too many in battle, right? You know what you can't have too many of? Shopkins. Like, like five Shopkins is too many Shopkins, okay? 32 soldiers is not too many soldiers. And God's like, that's, that's, that's too many. Because if you win, then it's gonna be by your own strength. So there's a couple of rounds of elimination. And most of us have read this story so many times that we kind of glaze over it. Whittles it down to about 10,000. It's like, surely, like, this is the number. And God is still like, nope, it's still too many. Let me whittle it down a little bit more. 400 soldiers is what Gideon was left with. No, sorry, 300 soldiers. 300 soldiers is what Gideon was left with. 300. Now, that's not any relation to the movie 300, okay? Totally different story. But 300 versus 135,000 people. And we read this. And for those of us who have grown up in church, we kind of, we get used to it. But think about the statistics on this. This is one Israelite soldier for every 450 Midianite soldier. 300 against 135,000. It's like some of you may have been a part of a church that was about 300 people, okay? We'll be there one day, almost there. When we moved to Murfreesboro, it was about 137,000. So that would be your church of 300, to give you a mental picture, the church you've been a part of or visited that was 300 people going to battle with the rest of Murfreesboro. <laughs> How's that gonna turn out for you, <laughs> right? On our own strength, not very well, because in all honesty, probably 300 people are not going to show up. There's going to be one crazy guy with Gideon, and he's going to have crazy eyes, like, I'm with you to the end, right? But, but the other 298, they're not showing up, right? Because they're thinking only on their strength. 
And God puts together this incredible plan where the 300 stand on top of the valley and the soldiers are in and there's like vases involved, there's pots involved and torches and swords and basically what happens is God creates chaos in the valley and the 135 soldiers turn on each other and Gideon has victory that day and didn't do anything in that moment because the victory that Gideon had was God's victory. And the victory that you and I have over nothing else, sin, death, hell, and the grave is God's victory, not ours. And so for you, like, I don't know what your battle is. Like we were singing it, like, I don't know what your battle is, what you're facing, what you're going through. And I feel like really in this series, I keep saying the same thing, but some of you need to get it and know that the success does not come from your strength, but it comes from God through you. And even when it comes to our salvation, Ephesians 2 says this, that salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done so that none of us can boast about it. Think about that. Like, like God has given it all to us so we can't brag about it. And I know we've all been around church folk and denominations that they brag and, and, and they hold up their self-righteousness before the rest of us and look down on us. Or maybe we feel inferior because of that. But Paul is very clear that self-righteousness is like rags before the Lord. That the righteousness that you and I have, the salvation that you and I have, we did absolutely nothing for it. And so there's, there's nothing that we can do. But for you, when I look at this encounter, and it's my heart for you to encounter and walk in God's presence, that, that, that you would walk in, in knowing that God sees the you that, that, that he can use. Not the you that think you are but he knows exactly how he's wired you and gifted you even all your quirks that drive your spouse or your parents nuts God's wired you in a specific way to use you before we go out and do the great things we need to go back home and do the important things we need to do that and understand that wherever you're at in your journey, as I look across this room, some of you I know, some of you I don't, but some of you have been walking with God for a while. Some of you are taking a couple of steps ahead, a couple of steps back. Some of you, this is all new to you. God's okay with the process of you growing in relationship with him and in faith with him because it's drawing you closer to him. But even in all that, everything good that we have in our life, every victory, every success, even salvation is because of him. And so I want to do this with every head bowed and every eye closed. I just, for some of you, like victory is not overcoming a circumstance. Like you don't need victory in a circumstance, but there's, there's a war going on on the inside of you. There's something stirring on the inside of you that's whether it's, it's a habit, it's a sin, it's a, you know, a struggle that you just can't seem to get victory over. God wants to bring victory into your life through that. In that, I mean, he wants to bring victory in that. And when you look in the mirror, you see disappointment. When he looks at you, he sees someone that he wants as his son or daughter. When you look at your past, you maybe see pain. When he looks at your past, he sees an opportunity to restore you. So if that's you here today and 
You need a relationship with Jesus. You need to surrender to him. Here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. We do this, if this is your home church, we will do this every single week because I never wanna miss an opportunity. I wanna, I wanna pray for you. If you're here today and you need victory over sin in your life, that only comes through a relationship with Christ. I wanna ask you right now just to raise your hand so that I know who I'm praying for. If that's you, just simply lift your hand up and then you can put it right back down with no one looking around because it's not about them. This is totally about you. And then here's what I want you to understand. Those of you who have lifted your hands, like that doesn't save you. Christ's work on the cross is what saves you. Lifting of your hand or, or that stirring in your heart is simply acknowledging what he wants to do in your life. And so I want to pray for you. And it's not going to be my words. I don't want you repeating after me. And it's like, I don't know what to say. Just say, Jesus, I give you my life. It's the simplest thing you can say because in that is surrender. In that is belief. You can't talk to someone you don't believe in. And that is understanding that he gave his life for you. So Father, I just come to you this morning. I thank you for your word, God. I thank you for your presence. I thank you for what you've done in this place today. Thank you for what you've done in our lives. God, help us to have the spirit of Gideon and and even following you when there's doubt. God, staying close to you when we have questions, being obedient to you even when it seems um, impossible. God, you saw the hands of those that lifted their hands just now, God, and it's not their hands that you're after, it's their heart. And so, God, in this moment, as they surrender to you, that you're taking that sin that separates them, God, that you're removing it. God, any guilt or shame that brought them to this point, you're exchanging it for joy and confidence in who they are in you. God, your word says that all those who are in Christ are a new creation. All the old is gone and all things are made new. Let today be the first day of the rest of their life. Let them walk with a reassurance of who you are in their life. Father, we celebrate with all of heaven and change lives and change hearts. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name.